0: We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire. With Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello
1: and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host Mike Slatman I have 45, well now 46 years of uh, fire investigation and as an expert and I'm honored to be a uh, past president of the International Association of Arson and
2: Investigators.
3: And I've been saying almost 30 years uh, officially this month I am now at 30 years experience in fire and fraud. I'm a past director of the International Association of Arson Investigators, and welcome to Speaking of Fire.
1: Thank you. And you'll notice that Donna is, uh, is is not in the studio. She's on the phone today. She's out of town, but she's calling in. So if this if it sounds a little bit different, that's because she's not all there. Okay. So <laughs> okay. So yes. Okay. So here. Today, we've got a kind of a serious subject, uh, but however, we've got a great guest, um, Rick Wynn. Rick Wynn uh, has 28 years of trial experience through Johnson County, Kansas, uh, the district attorney's office. He was a first assistant district attorney. And for, through the office of the Kansas Attorney General, um, he's been a lead attorney in over a hundred jury trials, and as, as uh, and concluded his prosecution career as head of the criminal division for the Kansas a- Attorney General's office. He was um, instrumental in the prosecution of the of the. Uh, case file that we're going to talk about today uh, and uh, is now in uh, private practice. Uh, Rick, thank you for being here. It's
2: good to be here and thank you very much for the
1: invitation. Yes, now you were, you spent all of these years in in prosecuting uh, criminal defendants and I know that you were extremely successful here in Johnson County and as a Kansas Attorney General, but then uh, you, uh, first assistant, but. You left left, uh, prosecution finally. What are you doing
2: now? For the past seven years or so, I have been practicing in the civil area of law, primarily in employment and business litigation matters and uh it's been an adjustment but i really enjoy what i do and have the pleasure of actually uh representing mike and donna on uh, business related matters that involve their company
1: yes thank you and i appreciate that and uh and he's a he's a great attorney um, and does a lot of corp carpor- uh, corporation and and law uh anyway corporation law uh also um he is well let's talk about this you were you were, um you're with the Kansas City arson task force. You were with the uh, you were the president of the Johnson County Bar Fund right? Association. Yes, correct. and um, and also a recipient of the their legacy award. But um, you you were also in the insurance fraud task force too, weren't you?
2: Correct. Uh, my uh, background uh, convinces me that uh, coordination of effort between prosecutors' offices. Uh, uh, fire departments, uh, police departments, and insurance fraud investigators is critical to being able to successfully bring a case to court and convict those that are uh, accused.
1: Well, I appreciate that. In fact, you uh, I remember when they started the economic uh, crime uh in uh, I guess a little division of the uh, prosecutor's office in Johnson County, you you were involved in that. Uh, in fact, you and I testified uh, once upon a time at, in front of the uh, of the Senate uh, in Kansas about uh, about uh, about fire issues. Did we not?
2: Yeah, I want to say that we were uh, pushing hard for uh, subpoena authority, if I'm not mistaken, to uh, be able to compel various entities to uh, produce documents that were critical to fraud investigation.
1: Right, well, and you've been helpful so much in, in civil uh, prosecution, or civil uh, resistance of arson claims. And now today we're gonna talk about this arson uh, murder uh, file. This is a case study of, of a fire that happened in on October 24th in 1995 at a residence in, in Prairie Village, Kansas. And it was the um, uh, subject of a book uh, by Anne Rule, Bitter Harvest was the name of the book. In fact, your picture appears in that book, doesn't
2: it? It sure does. Yes, and did she interview you? Uh, she was present throughout uh, proceedings that occurred at the courthouse, and so I'm, I've had a number of conversations with her. Yes,
1: and, and God bless her soul. She's passed on now, but uh, she was a great... Uh, uh, real crime uh, author at any rate anybody that wanted to, to was interested in this case and we're going to give you a little bit of a synopsis of what happened uh um and uh and donna was uh, also around at that time weren't you donna
3: yes i was i remember it vividly
1: Yes, and the Eastern Kansas Multi-County Task Force was the was the body that actually interviewed. Uh, I did, did the interviews and did the investigation, uh, and they've uh, they're still in. And what that's made up is of police and fire departments, uh, uh, and uh, throughout mainly fire departments uh, investigators, uh, that uh, go into a fire scene uh, together. It's sort of like a a mini uh, national response team. From uh, like the ATF and uh, but this is the arson uh, task force, so the Eastern Kansas Multi-County Task Force. Well, anyway, here's what happened on October 24th, 1995. There was a fire in this uh, in this very large, nice home uh, in in Prairie Village, Kansas. It was uh, the home was occupied by Dr. Deborah Green. Um, who was an oncologist and has uh, an additional degree in chemical engineering. Now, that's going to come in later as so you'll see why that makes it, that's important. Uh, she uh, lived there with her, her uh, husband and uh, three children. Uh, however, her husband was not living there at the time of the fire. Uh, he had left her, It was they were divorcing. So, so prior to this fire, um, and we find this in many cases, is... Uh, there'll be a history, some kind of a history of a fire, uh, fire's a fire setting. Uh, in in May uh, May 21st, 1994, there was a fire uh, in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And in that fire, which was also uh, their former residence, um, the authorities uh, listed the cause of the fire as undetermined. In other words, they, they didn't know what happened. And then later during a... Um, uh, an investigation by the by a, uh, a private firm, they indicated that it was an accidental fire caused by uh, an extension cord. In reality, uh, after this fire happened, uh, a re-review of that particular fire found that it was a set fire also. And they found out that Dr. Deborah Green and her children and the dog uh, the dogs, uh, left the house some few minutes before the fire and the fire occurred in the basement. Uh, now, had that been properly determined at the time, there's a real possibility that the second one may not have occurred because they might have stopped it. So um, remembering that we're now in, now, so they moved to Prairie Village. Uh, there was another circumstances to the, the uh the husband was uh, separated from his or hadn't separated from his wife, but was having an affair during that first fire. and she was uh, she was uh, cognizant of that and and then there was a fire and then they reconciled and they moved to Prairie Village.
2: Mike, if I can just add on that uh, <laughs> what Deborah Green learned as a result of that first fire was that she could get uh, her husband back into the picture based upon uh, her uh creating a catastrophe regarding the family and so she brought that to prairie village with her when they moved into this new residence that uh that was something that she could bring this estranged husband back into the family fold so to speak
1: that's exactly right it's um, in 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 our fire training we call that like a security fire she she's losing her security, so she does something to to get it to security back. So prior, so in uh, in 1995, uh, what happens is the the um, the family goes to Peru, and they they go on a, it's a school outing, um, and and they spend a couple weeks in Peru, and and uh, during this time. Um, the husband uh, makes an association with uh, one of the uh, teaching uh, assistants, I believe it was, and um, and then uh, when they come back to the United States, um, he starts an affair with this teaching assistant, and uh, and ultimately um, he leaves Deborah Greens asking for a divorce and and saying that uh, he wanted to um, he wanted a divorce, so he he got an uh, an apartment. Anyway, so um, they have a they had a teenage son, Tim, and uh, they also had uh, two daughters. But Tim in ni- in March of 1995, um, and another boy uh, uh, set a fire in a in a, a coffee can, and they put it over a fence, and and um, and so uh, that was a curiosity fire by a, by a teenage son. Um, well, that comes that comes in later. So you, I'm just bringing this up so you know. Uh, so six months after the uh, the, for the they took this trip to Peru, um, the uh, he's having an affair with this other woman and he's moved out. Um, and so in July he asks her for a divorce and uh, and he continues the affair. So. Um, during the during August of 1995, the husband continues to you know see the children and pick up his mail and things of that nature, and he and and he has dinners with them, and and then after that he he seems to be stricken on three separate occasions with with different kinds of uh, gastric distress. Uh, um, Chicken salad sandwiches, spaghetti, ham and beans, and he's had to be admitted to the hospital for vomiting and diarrhea and, and uh, dehydration. Uh, it was later learned during your investigation uh, of the of the of the fire, the fatal fire, that uh, that Doctor Green was actually um, poisoning her husband. Uh, using the terrible poison, ricin.
2: Yeah, what was very interesting uh, was when the this fire in Prairie Village occurs, um, the husband immediately volunteers, I think my wife, uh, Deborah Green, is poisoning me. And they said, well, what would cause you to believe that? Well, he says, I'm a doctor, and uh, I have symptoms, and I've looked in my medical books, and the symptoms I have correspond uh, uh, very closely with ricin poisoning, and I believe that's what's going on. And uh, so there was that uh, lead that was then followed up as a result of uh, the husband believing this to be the case. And it's also interesting. The husband volunteered uh, this happened. Uh, my my afflictions occurred immediately after eating. Uh, dinners with her I discontinued eating any dinners with her and sure enough he didn't have any further issues with uh, uh, the vomiting and nauseousness that you're describing yeah exactly right but uh, go ahead go ahead
3: Tom I was going to say Rick didn't didn't they initially think that it was something from the trip overseas
2: that's correct that was his first uh, belief was well it probably had something to do with the Peru trip and and uh, but the I, the uh, the fact that things were occurring right after he was having dinners with uh, Deborah Green serving the dinners caused him to, to uh, look to his textbooks and uh, find symptomology that was consistent with what he was experiencing.
1: Yes, I should have mentioned that he was a cardiologist and that uh, he was a doctor also. So and and. Needless to say that uh, you know you go to your local emergency room. Not the first thing they don't think of is is ricin poisoning. That's, uh, that's what they uh, they remember. They killed that uh, diplomat, uh, the Bulgarian uh, in Bulgaria, with with by by uh, using that uh, syringe in a an a pointed uh, umbrella. umbrella. Yeah, correct. Killed killed him with uh, ricin. Anyway, so. Uh, she w- remember I had brought up that she had a degree in chemical engineering, so she no doubt she knew how to extract this ricin from, from other um, materials. We won't go into that. so
2: But all right, I, I can just add to that. The, yeah. the castor beans is where the ricin comes from. And castor beans, believe it or not, uh, can be purchased uh, very easily at uh, garden nurseries uh, in the United States, and I assume around the world. And, uh, uh... But the,
1: the extraction process, you, you just can't cook them down. So, so, what we're trying to do is, if you're going to try and use ricin, don't do it. Because uh-huh. we're going to know now. And on top of that, uh, it, since this is, uh, ricin is now used a lot more uh, in poisoning, so uh, the uh, hospitals now are aware of that. Yeah, I agree. So, anyway, so good, I'm glad. In September 25th, 1995, the children called uh, called the called husband and said that um, Dr. Green was unconscious from being drunk and she was also suicidal. <clears throat> now, this is in September of 95. And at that time, he went through her purse and found the castor beans and the syringes, which he turned over uh, to the police eventually. Uh, in October of 1995 a neighbor found a copy of a letter i'll let you talk about that uh, in a moment rick uh, in the yard um, and it was revealed during the investigation that the neighbors had found copies of the letter all kinds of neighbors had found them and and the letter was to these uh, a private school that the that the children were going to complaining about the teaching assistant uh, and uh, her husband's affair and their general activities uh, on the Peruvian trip, and it uh, also praised this wife. It was unsigned, of course. It was uh, it was unsigned. It was anonymous, but it praised the wife, the the. And this is part of this because it praised this gallant wife that was living through this oppression. And it was a it was a letter, if you remember, Rick. That was quite um, yeah. the
2: talented. the The neighborhood was uh, uh, very. Affluent, lots of very nice homes in the cul-de-sac where this uh, large home was located, and uh, these various unsigned letters ended up on the in the mailboxes of neighbors. Yeah. and a few were. Um, I also
1: found a, a couple neighbors. I worked this fire, so I know that um, I talked to Dr. Uh, Doctor. Well, I talked to Dr. Green only for a moment. We'll talk about that when the fire scene comes up. but uh, but uh, I talked to the husband. I spent four hours with him in in the hospital because he was having, he eventually had from the ricin poisoning, he eventually had open heart surgery and and neurosurgery. Um, and I had uh, talked to him before his neurosurgery um, to get a statement from him. And they were cleaning out bacteria. From his heart and his his brain, um, it would have been a very slow and horrible death had had it uh, succeeded. Um, but anyway, so it's this letter is praising this heroic wife. Okay, which is part of something that Rick is going to talk about uh, uh, about Munchen's uh, Munchausen by proxy. By proxy, right. yeah. On the day of the fire, um, Doctor Doctor Ferrar picked. Uh, picked up uh I'm, I'm sorry that's that's uh he on her the husband picked up the the son and the, and one of the daughters um after attending uh the son's hockey game and the and the son was very happy that day he had scored a goal he was he was very up um and uh he brought them home uh and the reason that's it's, it's uh it's important to know that Tim was in a good mood that day and very happy. He was later on we'll talk about how how it's a thing called a backfire defense and uh, on how uh, there was a discussion about whether or not she she was going to blame her children for the fire. But anyway, um, Doctor Green said that when he brought him home that he had lurked around the house and that he was being skulking around the house that day. Now remember this is the afternoon of the fire and um and it was the last time that he saw um the children uh, two of the children alive um at that time so when he left there he went to uh his uh, girlfriend's house had dinner with her had a watched a football game and during the evening Dr. Green um uh kept, he kept paging him with her home number and uh and uh When he called her, at that time, she said that she hadn't paged him. But then five minutes later, he received another page, and he called her again. And she told him she was going to use, what attorney she was going to use in the divorce. Well, he already knew that. Um, And so, and then he left, and he was on his way to his apartment, and he was then paged about 11.35 p.m. by her. When he reached the apartment he found that his caller ID indicated she had been calling him throughout the evening at his apartment. She was trying to find out if he was with his girlfriend or at home. He then called her from the apartment and they had an argument and he told her that other parents had been threatening to call child welfare because she was crazy, he told her, and he knew she was trying uh, to poison him and he threatened to take the children away from her and
2: so they were very angrily hung up and and that's the last phone conversation between the two yeah he did
1: no there there was the second last because yeah the the last one was he received another call from her at the apartment and when he answered because she thought she was going to leave him a message because he hadn't been home yet See up till then. When he answered, she was surprised, and and uh, she said she just wanted to leave a message, and then she hung up. And so, and this you can't use this in a in a case, but it was our speculation that that she she she. I thought that she was. We always thought uh, a lot of the investigators thought that she was going to again uh, threaten suicide, and then um, and then set the fire. That's what we thought. Yep, I agree. Okay, so. The next call that he received was from the neighbor, and the neighbor called him up, and and uh, and the neighbor said, and we're not going to say bad words over the internet, okay, although we could because it's not FCC. He said, well, I'm going to put it like this. The the neighbor that called him was another doctor because this is an upscale neighborhood, and this is a woman doctor, and she called him up and said, your wife's an effing arsonist. That was the opening words of and I know because I interviewed her too and she she said yeah that's correct so anyway so now we'll talk about um the, do you want to add anything to that no okay good. all right and then okay so now we'll talk about the fire now the prosecution is very important so I've got to give you all this background before we get into the prosecution so you'll see what Rick had to deal with during the course of this thing but uh the fire was reported at 12 27 a.m at their Canterbury Court address, and um, and now, and by the way, that was a it was a three, it was a, it was a multiple bedrooms. It had a piano room. It was a beautiful, uh, beautiful place. And then um, it's now a park like thing because the neighbors uh, bought the property, tore tore the house down, and and there'll never be another. Uh, there'll never be a house there again because of the murders. Okay, so approximately four minutes prior to the report of the fire, a 911 call had been received where heavy breathing could be heard by the dispatcher. Um, And it was later learned that the 11-year-old daughter of Dr. Green had made that call and then escaped from the second floor bedroom onto the garage roof. She had made the 911 call, but she was becoming overcome by smoke, so she got out. The other two children uh, didn't get out. So um, on the arrival of a police sergeant, a good guy, he found that the fire was raging in the center and rear portions of the house and that he couldn't get in. Uh, he observed a, po- a child, this little girl screaming that her sister, brother and dog were still in the house. He also observed an adult female standing in night clothing and looking at the fire. He thought she was a neighbor Um, And then he said to the child, he said, where's your mom? And this woman who was just staring at the fire turned to him and said, I'm mom. And that is significant only that the the adult male was Dr. Green. She displayed no emotion and didn't seem to be upset. She reportedly, according to the police sergeant, uh, reeked of alcohol. At the time, do you remember that?
2: Rick? Yes, there was a very large wine cellar in the basement, with uh, literally uh, a few hundred bottles of wine. It was a very uh, impressive wine collection.
1: Yes, and also we we found out that she had been she'd been she'd been drinking 180 proof uh, alcohol, uh, and gin and 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 uh, and tequila. So we found a lot of those bottles, too, and empty ones and stuff. So anyway, so we've only got a couple minutes left. But let me tell you that um, it was found that the child who who got out uh, of the bedroom window um, had seen Deborah Green down. uh, This is her mother. And Deborah ordered her to jump off the roof, and she said she'd catch her. However, when the child jumped, uh, she wasn't caught. She she hit the pavement. But... uh, um, Deborah said that she missed her. She tried to, give her, but she wasn't injured from that, which is great. Um, but anyway, so okay. Um, we found out also that, uh, and and Deborah Green did say this that she went out the back door uh, of her master bedroom, which is on the first floor, and at that time she'd heard uh, her son telling her that there was a fire. And what should he do? And she told him to stay in the room, uh, to let the professionals save you, is an direct quote, um, what she said. Um, and she told him that if he had to do something, try to find his his other sister, the six-year-old child that, that was killed. Um, now, that's important because uh, the way the fire was set, if he had left his bedroom into the hallway, he would have been immediately... Um, and confronted by fire because she's when she set the fire, she poured it down the hallway um, so the children couldn't have gotten out of the second floor. So, um, and Donna, I know I haven't been allowing you to say, uh, we've given all this background. In the second portion of this, we're going to have more of a discussion, but we have to tell, we had to give the background here.
3: Right, right.
1: Okay, so anyway, so we've got... um, We've got just one minute left. Um, let me tell you that when she left, she went next door to the neighbors. And when she did that, uh, she had a, a towel wrapped around her neck and, um, and, and her hair was wet. Now, we're going to go to break. And when we come back, you'll hear the rest of the story and what happened uh, to her subsequently. So when you come back, come back to Speaking of Fire.
0: it easier to listen to the voice america talk radio network live wherever you go on iphone blackberry or android download it from the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market fire consulting international provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations our experienced certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at com. Now, back to this week's program.
3: Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining
0: us.
1: Okay, well, when we left off, we're just going to quickly talk about the fire itself it was over 50 percent involved when the fire department arrived it was already through the roof um uh the husband arrived and the first thing he said to uh to dr green and her with their daughter sitting in the back of the police cruiser is deborah what have you done and uh so he was already you know he was in his in suspecting this was wrong, uh, when they when they put out the fire, uh, they found the uh, that the body of the of, of the son uh, had fallen through to the uh, first floor, uh, and that um, his, uh, his foot had been burned off and was found in the basement exercise room. The six-year-old was found lying in her bed uh, at the end of the hall. She not awakened, and she died of smoke inhalation. Uh, one of the worst uh, photographs I've ever seen in my life was this uh, blonde child with a teddy bear with a with uh, smoke staining under her nose. It must have been... Would Rick, that particular photograph, was that ever introduced?
2: I'm sure, yeah. it would. Uh, at the preliminary hearing, absolutely, it would have been produced.
1: Yes. So is that, I, you know, I didn't know if, if that was, you know, it was just a horrible photograph. I saw that little angelic child they're dead anyway the multi-county past task force comes they do a, a good fire investigation they find that the fire was spread through the second floor um, hallway outside the children's bedrooms down the steps through the first floor um, into uh, her husband's office and into up to the, the the door of the bedroom where she escaped from and uh, she uh, that the fire was lit there uh, she said that she had slammed the door when she op- She had heard sm- the smoke detectors going off. She opened the door um, and then slammed it. Well, the door was open at the time of the fire was proven. Um, and uh, sh- they found a, a robe with two holes burned in the knee, uh, where the yeah. knees would have been, where uh, where she was kneeling down. Plus, she had gotten flashed at the time. Uh, and uh, I mean, the reason we know that is she, she had... Uh, she had that, um, her hair was wet and had that towel round her neck when she reported it to the neighbors and, um, also later had her, um, hair cut twice, uh, before, um, uh, just to get rid of the, I'm sure, get rid of the, uh, the singeing. But, um, now they did interview her at length, um, and she said things uh, like uh, when they talked to her about her son, who's Tim. Uh, she said that used to be my 15-year-old. She already knew he was dead. Um, uh, and at one point, she um, she said, uh, if they weren't found by now, they must be dead. Uh, very unemotional. Uh, then when she was told that uh, they were deceased both of the children she um, she actually uh, started crying for 15 seconds I know because we timed it and then came up looked at these um, police detectives and started yelling at them telling them uh, that they were um, a lot of bad words and then saying that um, treating her that they were treating her like an animal and I'll never forget this. Uh, One of her says that she had to talk to her husband because, quote, only he and I can share this mammoth grief. Okay.
2: Yeah, it uh, that goes back to what uh, I had mentioned previously, the Munchausen syndrome by proxy, and what that entails. It's a mental health condition in which a caregiver, in this instance, uh, Doctor Deborah Green, causes an illness the ricin poisoning to a person that uh, she thinks uh, highly of and wants to care for so that that person becomes reliant upon her or dependent upon her as a caregiver. She had never given up on this relationship with her husband. Even after having set the fire and killed her children, she was of the opinion that nobody was ever gonna figure out that this was, uh, that she set the fire that instead it would be a situation where her husband would come back to her and they would move on with their their marriage uh, because they needed to grieve together the loss of these children. Uh, Instead, what happened was the father of these children was convinced that she was trying to kill him and that he was that she was responsible for killing their children, and he did everything under his power from the the minute uh, it was discovered that the children were deceased in this uh, large fire to uh, assist with uh, her prosecution. Uh, and motive is a big thing any time in these uh, arson cases, particularly with murder being involved. And this Munchausen syndrome was uh, critical to uh, establishing motive. Another big piece of the prosecution was the mere fact that uh, the husband believed that he was being poisoned didn't get you there, uh, just because symptoms happened to be consistent with that. Uh, What happened was the district attorney at the time in Johnson County, Paul Morrison, began uh, contacting various federal agencies on the east coast of the United States and eventually was able to uh, find... Uh, through an espionage agency, somebody who was skilled and had the the background and, and uh, expertise to be able to testify as to uh, ricin poisoning based upon blood samples that he would look at. And uh, his conclusion, this expert that testified uh, during the case was that this was very clearly ricin poisoning that had occurred with the husband and that uh, it almost cost him his life, as, as Mike uh, suggested. When the husband finally testified during the proceedings, he had a large scar on his head where his skull had been opened up in order to provide uh, life-saving treatment. Uh, but she almost uh, killed him as a result of the poisoning that occurred. And, of course, as a prosecutor, it's much easier to obtain a conviction if you're uh, already... Home with the fact that she tried to kill her husband, it wouldn't be a terribly large leap to uh, then conclude that she uh, intentionally set this fire and and uh, she uh, wanted to to kill all three children to get back at her husband for his uh, extramarital affair with the the uh, lady that he was seeing at the time.
1: Yeah. By the way, I I met her too, and she. Um... They never married. Um, that that affair was over after the uh, after, this, um, after this after this incident. Um, ultimately, Doctor, there, there was a long uh, investigation, and uh, and we'll talk to um, we'll talk to uh, to Rick here in a moment about how the arson murder case is uh, investigated. But but many agencies were involved, and uh, and I was lucky enough to be selected as the as a um, as a kind of a consultant i had worked the fire for for the insurance company um not as the the initial one but as the follow-up investigator and so i was not privy to uh being able to sit in while the rice and testimony and stuff was going on in case you needed me as a witness so i was being withheld but i was i was helping in in the um in the picking of who who do we want to testify and in what order about the fire, only about the fire. You guys, of course, ran the whole thing. And 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 I remembering that fire investigators are only one part of of a prosecution because, uh, as Rick will tell you in a moment, it's a, it's a it's quite a uh, orchestration to get all the pieces put together. Um, and so. Um, A lot of stuff goes into an arson
2: murder investigation case, right? Right. Uh, I would just say, because Mike won't say this about himself, uh, but he is uh, known throughout the uh, middle of the United States, uh, several state region, as being one of the premier experts in terms of fire analysis and investigation. So when this uh, arson case occurred, it was an easy uh, call to Mike to say, could you please uh, provide us uh, advice and counsel with regard to how best to handle this? And we took him, he took us up on the offer and was very instrumental in terms of the successful outcome of the case. What I have found uh, in these cases that involve fire investigation as well as homicide uh, is that fire investigators are... Absolutely, the experts in terms of uh, determining cause and origin of a fire. However, because they don't have the day-to-day interviewing uh, experience that law enforcement have, uh, both um, disciplines bring expertise to the table that are crucial to each other. So what the fire side of the equation, the fire investigators do, they determine cause and origin. The uh, law enforcement, police investigators conduct the interviews. Well, you have to have those two groups together in order to know what questions should be asked to the people being interviewed. So what happened every day in this case for a a number of uh, weeks was you would have the the cause and origin people at the fire scene, you'd have law enforcement at the police department, and every day about three o'clock in the afternoon, A large contingency of both groups would come together. The fire people would share information that they've collected at the fire scene that's critical to be uh, investigated, and then the law enforcement community uh, would then go out and conduct interviews uh, of various uh, witnesses concerning the information that the fire people were coming up with. And uh, I'm just convinced that that uh, coordination of effort, that uh, team effort, uh, paid very big dividends in this case well
1: i think uh, i also i want to compliment the uh, thank you for your kind words earlier i want to compliment your office because see uh, you guys had background in fire and you had people that would prosecute fire cases um you you actually were there to give the the Eastern Kansas County Task Force advice on, on on the on what to take as uh, as evidence. Uh, I mean, they took they end up taking the door, the floor, uh, all these different things that they took for evidence for you to use later on in the prosecution. And they were there. Uh, you were available to them for for advice. And that's not always all. Uh, as fire investigators will tell you, there's not a lot of, of uh, expertise in, in uh, uh, and it's and not enough. In uh, in prosecutors' offices, there. In fact, the IAAI teaches, of course, and as does the ATF, in arson for prosecutors, so that they make them know that it's uh, it's not that insurmountable mountain that uh, a lot of them feel. But uh, your office was great in that, and so I want to
3: add something to that too. Sure. Um, in addition to this, this case had a lot of coverage nationwide, and particularly in Kansas City, and the defense. Also, um, the, in this case, was an attorney who was a prior district attorney and later on became a, a United States representative. And I know out in the field, and I'm talking to fire investigators here, there is, it's, it, that is not a bad thing. Rick, if you want to elaborate on that as far as experience goes and due process.
2: Yeah. Um, Anytime you have a high-quality defense team on the other side, and they had two or three very highly experienced uh, defense attorneys, what ends up happening is later appeals to try to overturn the conviction are typically not granted because of the quality of representation that the accused had at the time of the trial. And and these guys, as, as Donna has indicated, uh, the lead attorney was former district attorney for the county and highly respected and knew what he was doing. And uh, Mike had mentioned there was this small fire that uh, the son had uh, set and so that was kind of the natural defense that who's to say son didn't set this fire and uh of course uh he um uh, the former district attorney took some heat on that defense because um you shouldn't go after an innocent son under those kind of circumstances no no it would that's a, that's what that back, backfire defense was
1: uh, i was talking about earlier it can backfire on you and you can you can get people to death penalty over trying to blame it as, Dead child. Anyway, but in, uh, but in this but,
3: instance, though, this particular case has gone uh, up for I don't know if it's a, for for retrial or for a trial because it never was tried for a trial or uh, for an appeal. And yes, those weren't granted. Correct.
2: That is correct. And and just so people know what the outcome was, she entered a no contest uh, plea. Uh, as charged to the the charges that were brought against her with a uh, controlling 40-year life sentence. And she still is in the uh, custody of the Kansas Secretary of Corrections serving out that 40-year sentence.
1: Yeah, that's called a hard 40. She's not going to get any parole out of that. She's going to have to serve all 40 years. Uh, She did come back, however, um, while you were uh, uh, with the... uh, uh, Attorney General's office. She came back for after uh, the nine years that she got for uh, for trying to poison uh, Doctor Ferrar. I'm sorry, that's her husband. Anyway, the bottom line is she came back and um, and she tried. First of all, she moved for a new trial uh, during one. uh, And again, I was lucky enough to give you a couple of. you brought in some people to counter. They brought an expert in that said that, uh, that in 1995, we didn't know what we were doing. Everything had changed since 921 uh, came in and that, Apparently he was testifying that uh, the laws of uh, physics were reversed or something. Anyway, the bottom line is that uh, we brought you brought in a couple of experts, uh, Dr. Don John Dehan and and David Campbell uh, f- from North Carolina, and you beat that motion. Is that correct? Again,
2: yeah, we went back to Mike and said, "This is what they're claiming that." Uh The uh, sophistication of fire investigation and analysis has dramatically improved since uh, the investigation occurred back in 1995. Mike, who do you recommend to come in to indicate that things haven't uh, changed that much in fire science? And so Mike recommended those individuals and they were very uh, persuasive in their testimony.
1: Yes, and and that was great. And then after the nine years uh, of... um Recently, well, somewhat recently, um, she, she uh, again moved uh, for a new trial, um, or a new hearing, I guess, uh, for a new trial, um, and uh, at that time, uh, again, uh, there was there was a hearing held, and um, and she that was defeated. Um, and that was. Uh, that's, she she keeps trying to get out. She's, uh, I, I don't, uh, the, that was, was that part of the Innocence Project? That
2: I don't believe so, but I, I think the, the second challenge was uh, the effective assistance of counsel, and again, as Donna has pointed out, it was not going to go anywhere because she had uh, some of the best defense counsel that uh, was available at the time in the Kansas City area. No, and great. what
3: she had entered was an Alford plea, correct? Which, which is basically saying, um, well, you can you can talk about that, Rick. But wasn't it an Alford plea?
2: An Alford plea is a plea that is uh, entered when somebody wants to take advantage of a plea bargain. In this instance, uh, wasn't much of a plea bargain. She got 40 years uh, in the penitentiary. The reason that uh, the offer was extended was because uh, it was clear from psychological testing that had uh, been accomplished on her that although she was uh, way above the the norm in terms of intellectual capability, her social skills uh, and her ability to uh, make decisions that the normal person would, uh, make about these kinds of things was much, um, less so. And so they had some strong argument from, uh, mental health experts that she was not the normal person, uh, involved in this. Right. As an oncologist, she had uh,
1: worked in different, uh, hospitals and kept getting, uh, uh, well, in essence, uh, asked to leave because she couldn't get, she had no social skills. She had no filter. She, she just berated people all the time. And then, uh, what happened was she, uh, she ended, up, uh, ended up working out of her home reviewing uh, oncology files that were sent to her in the mail. You, and uh, we found a bunch of them at the time. I, I did the fire scene examination uh, too. Uh, it was it was not my job. I I had to be there uh, to look at the thing because I was doing the follow up. And I met her. It was the third day. The children hadn't been uh, it hadn't been buried yet. And she was there in the basement. Uh, I I gave her my card and asked her to have my, her attorney call me because I wanted to take her statement. Uh, for the insurance company. Of course, that never happened. Uh, But um, she was down in the basement, and she was getting wine and a set of dishes out of the basement. Now, I don't know what the general public thinks about this, but I think it's if your children are are killed uh, in a fire and you had nothing to do with it and you had any feelings for them at all, I don't think you'd be out collecting wine on the third day. But that's, I guess that's up to... uh,
3: Particularly Europe. where they were, where they were murdered.
2: Absolutely. I mean. yeah. yes. You know, I, I would just point out um, the two detectives with the Prairie Village Police Department that conducted the interview the night of the the arson uh, did a masterful job of just allowing her to talk. Uh, sometimes. Uh, Not confessing to a crime uh, can appear as though it's uh, a wasted effort, and in reality, what happened was uh, the trier of fact was able to see somebody that uh, showed very little emotion about what had just happened, was very angry uh, at the law enforcement people who were just trying to uh, ascertain facts. And so her demeanor during that videotape, even though she really didn't say much in terms of admitting any wrongdoing, was really critical to the success of the prosecution. Yes, and I don't know, were, were you able
1: to show any of
2: that video to the jury? Uh, not to the jury, because it didn't end up in front of a jury, but to the, I mean, to, to the judge. To the judge yeah, on absolutely. the preliminary, that's right.
1: Yep. Um, okay, so
2: uh, the, the
1: end result is that she killed her two children she she pled this Alford plea uh for 40 years she's supposed to get her release date is november the 21st to, uh, 2035 um she'll be 84 years old if she makes it if she, if she if she doesn't die in prison um i thought it was interesting that it, at different times and during her her being incarcerated that she's been she's worked in the kitchen and she's also worked in the infirmary uh, at the at the at the, in the corrections. I she has she has a she still has the ability to hurt people. <laughs> I just hope she doesn't. Um, Donna, uh, do you have any any other questions for for Rick?
3: No, I um, thank you, Rick, for for your office doing in in getting that prosecuted and in getting her to plea.
2: Well, and I, that was, I appreciate that. Was that was really uh, a
3: tragedy. Yeah.
2: yeah. Paul, Paul Morrison deserves uh, a lot of credit on this case. He was the district attorney at the time. He was lead counsel. Uh, he was a tremendous and still is a tremendous trial lawyer. And any time you have something as uh, as significant as this kind of a, a crime occurring in your community, uh, the... Uh, the citizens of this county were blessed to have one of the best trial lawyers, in my opinion, in the Midwest. Yes, and I and he's still
1: out there, and I like him a lot, Paul. And thank you for for letting me be a part of this uh, this case, and and uh, thank the insurance company for for having me do the follow up. Also, uh, you'll find that um, that the assistance of of prosecutors, and whether it's a uh, 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 you know uh, the insurance company, can also uh, be involved in it under the Arson Acts throughout the United States. You can exchange information. Sometimes uh, there's even examinations under oath that are taken. Uh, she didn't do that, of course, in this case. The, 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 they didn't pay uh, her a portion of this uh, loss, needless to say. Um, now the other innocent people, uh, uh, innocent spouse, uh, that's a different story. But uh, the the main thing is that you should not benefit from these fires. Uh, we've only got two minutes left, Rick. Do you have any? Yeah, do you I, have any closing?
2: Yeah, I, some people think uh, uh, less of the husband of Deborah Green for uh, the way he handled things, and I I would just make the observation. Uh, she was out of control when he was in the relationship. She was out of control when he was out of the relationship. Uh, in my opinion, um, it was a no-win situation for him. Uh, I'm sure had he known that he was uh, that she was going to kill these kids, he would have done everything he could have to try to uh, intervene. But um, I just sometimes uh, I know. The husband, because we dealt with him a lot, and I think he's a uh, pretty upstanding individual, and is a great father to the surviving child that uh, remains.
1: Yes, and you know what, um, I I didn't find anything wrong with him either. As far as he made a mistake, by I mean the affairs, you can that's that's whatever it is. the, the bottom line is he loved his children. Uh, what I was surprised about is the daughter. Uh, has now uh, been on on Deborah Green's side uh, in these hearings. Okay, so next week, um, thank you, Rick, for being here. For next Very week, well. we're going to have a rebroadcast because I'm going to be teaching an expert witness course in at the IWI headquarters. So um, we'll we'll be doing our most popular show, uh, Doc, uh, Dan Medrakowski on, on on how to not set yourself on fire. Okay, so that's our most popular show. It was our first one, and everybody likes it. So come, come back. and Donna, thank you for being there, and, and uh, we'll, we're off next week, so you can run around. So OK,
3: <laughs> okay so uh, thanks so When you
1: come oh, thank you're you. welcome.: And when you come back, so ladies and gentlemen throughout the world, when you come back, come back to speaking of fire.
0: Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.